What did those early believers believe about the bread and the cup? This is Francis Chan. He's a prominent evangelical pastor, author, and speaker. This was a recording of one of his worship services, and he's passionately explaining how the church has historically understood communion. They all believed that there was some sort of mysterious presence of God, that there was something special when the believers gathered together in unity. They believed that Christ's real presence was somehow and we're not going to fight about exactly how or when it happens or how it happens and exactly to what extent this is the body and blood of Christ. Okay, let's not divide. But they were in agreement for 1,500 years that there was a real presence of Christ in the elements. And when the elements were prayed over, Something happened. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Like Francis Chan, I was also an evangelical pastor and an apologist, though not nearly as popular. And it seems like Francis Chan and I share something else in common. Church history made us rethink the whole idea of communion. As we've been talking about in the last couple of episodes, Catholics believe that the bread and wine consecrated in communion become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. It's not just a symbol, it's the real deal. Why do we believe this? The answer is because the Bible says so. I would encourage you to read all of John 6, which is the story of the feeding of the 5,000, followed by the bread of life discourse. For the sake of time, I'm going to pick up at verse 46, where John records Jesus saying the following, Quote, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever, end quote. Now, if you were to talk to me, say, 10 years ago, I would have told you, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. He's asking us to consume him spiritually, not literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. As a Catholic, I have changed my tune. I believe, as the Catholic Church teaches, that Jesus' flesh is real food and his blood is real drink. And to consume him spiritually does not negate the physical, but includes it. The Eucharist is not a placebo where we symbolically and metaphorically consume the body and blood of Jesus like we're pretending. It is a mystery, a theophany, where the bread and wine take on the body and blood of Jesus and we enter into communion with him. Why do I in the Catholic Church believe that? There's a few reasons. 
First, the Apostle John, in writing about this, uses a couple of different words for eat. The first is phago, which literally means to eat or consume like food. But the second is trago, which means to gnaw on. It's almost like John is clarifying very graphically and emphatically that Jesus doesn't mean this metaphorically, but really, we are to really gnaw on his flesh and drink his blood. Secondly, the reaction by the Jews indicates that they didn't think Jesus was speaking in metaphors, and Jesus actually doubles down on his words. In verse 66, it says, quote, Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, Do you also wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life, end quote. So Jesus went on and on about his flesh being real food, and those around him got really confused. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they asked. Good question. Jesus then kept going on about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and so finally, a bunch of his followers abandoned him. You would think that if Jesus was speaking metaphorically, he would stop them and say, guys, you're not getting it. I'm talking to you in metaphors. But he doesn't. He lets them go. The only logical conclusion here is that Jesus was speaking literally. There's another reason why we take this to be literal and not metaphorical, and that's the context of the time that this passage is written in. The New Testament was written between the late 40s to around 100 AD. In other words, at the time the first piece of text that makes up the New Testament was written, the church was already about 15 years old. The New Testament was not written in a vacuum. It was written to a church already in existence. When John wrote his gospel, which we just read, sometime between 90 to 100 AD, Christianity was already around 60 years old. Jesus didn't say to his disciples, hey guys, I'm off, so what I need you to do is write a book, a, a manual that instructs people what to believe and how to act. That's a really modern Western concept. No, he said, I want you to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's what they did. They went from city to city, spending months and years teaching about Christianity and establishing a local church. So why all of a sudden did the apostolic fathers write letters and gospel accounts? The reason in most cases was to settle discrepancies and disputes. Luke starts off his account by saying, Many have tried to tell Jesus' story, but I've done a ton of investigative research and here's what I've learned. Paul often wrote letters to the churches with which he had spent months and years, but he wrote those letters because he got wind of some bad things that were happening. I recommended in a previous episode reading the book Church History by the 4th century Bishop Eusebius. I've again included a link to the free ebook in the show notes. One thing that immediately struck me when reading it was how many heresies just kept popping up in the early church. One of the major first century heresies was called Gnosticism. While Gnosticism is a broad term for a variety of beliefs, one of the common threads of Gnostics was a rejection of the physical. According to Gnostics, the material world and matter itself, the earth, was corrupt, and therefore there was this almost Buddhist-like idea of freeing the mind from the body. Many Gnostic Christians rejected the idea that Jesus was truly flesh and blood because how can the Redeemer of the fallen world be himself fully human and part of creation when all of creation is corrupt? Furthermore, salvation was more of a process of the mind, hence the word Gnostic, but nothing was physically required because the body was nothing but a corrupt weight holding down the mind. 
Now think about John writing chapter 6 to specifically combat Gnosticism and reinforcing the theology that A, Jesus was truly flesh and blood, a central theme in his gospel as well as his letters. B, salvation wasn't just about knowing mentally, but also there were physical requirements like baptism. And C, the Lord's Supper wasn't just a spiritual communion, uh, but a physical one as well. I think there's a reason why John records the bread of life discourse in chapter 6, why he really stresses Jesus' words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And I think it's for similar reasons why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 11, 29-30, which I've referred to in a couple of episodes. Quote, For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. End quote. John and Paul were specifically combating the Gnostic idea of the rejection of the body and blood of Christ in the bread and wine of communion. There's another reason why the Catholic Church believes that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, and that is because the Church throughout history has understood and proclaimed this very belief. In episode 7, called The Collective Memory of Christianity, I mentioned how we have the New Testament, a collection of 27 letters and narrative accounts written by the Apostolic Fathers. However, we must respect that the early churches spent years with the apostles. These early Christians might be able to shed some light on what the apostles meant in some of these tricky passages like John chapter 6. For example, Ignatius of Antioch, a disciple of John, wrote this in his letter to the Romans around 110 AD, quote, I have no taste for corruptible food, nor for the pleasure of this life. I desire the bread of God, which is the flesh of Jesus Christ, and for drink I desire his blood, which is love incorruptible, end quote. In his letter to the Smyrnaeans, he writes, quote, Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins, and which that Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes, end quote. The philosopher and Christian convert Justin Martyr, who grew up in Samaria, wrote the following around 151 AD in his first apology, quote, For not as common bread nor common drink do we receive these, but since Jesus Christ, our Savior, was made incarnate by the word of God and had both flesh and blood for our salvation, so too as we have been taught. The food which has been made into the Eucharist by the Eucharistic prayer set down by him and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nurtured is both the flesh and the blood of that incarnated Jesus. End quote. Notice two things. First, he said, as we have been taught. And secondly, notice the clarity in his statement. There can be no question that the early church believed and practiced that the Eucharist became the literal flesh and blood of Jesus. The Greek bishop Irenaeus, who was said to have heard the preaching of Polycarp, who himself had heard the preaching of the Apostle John, had this to say around 189 AD in his work against heresies. Quote, if the Lord were from other than the Father, how could he rightly take bread, which is of the same creation as our own, and confess it to be his body and affirm that the mixture in the cup is his blood, end quote. 
Uh, going a bit further, he continues, quote, He has declared the cup a part of creation to be his own blood from which he causes our blood to flow and the bread a part of creation he has established as his own body from which he gives increase into our bodies. When therefore the mixed cup, wine and water and the baked bread receives the word of God and becomes the Eucharist, the body of Christ, and from these the substance of our flesh is increased and supported, how how can they say that the flesh is not capable of receiving the gift of God, which is eternal life, flesh which is nourished by the body and blood of the Lord, and is in fact a member of him? End quote. Let me jump ahead around 200 years. This is what Cyril of Jerusalem had to say in 350 AD in his catechetical letters. Quote, the bread and the wine of the Eucharist before the holy invocation of the adorable Trinity were simple bread and wine. But the invocation having been made, the bread becomes the body of Christ and the wine the blood of Christ. End quote. Uh, going on a little further, he continues, quote, Do not, therefore, regard the bread and wine as simply that, for they are, according to the Master's declaration, the body and blood of Christ. Even though the senses suggest to you the other, let faith make you firm. Do not judge in this matter by taste, but be fully assured by the faith, not doubting that you have been deemed worthy of the body and blood of Christ. Since you are fully convinced that the apparent bread is not bread, even though it is sensible to the taste, but the body of Christ, and that the apparent wine is not wine, even though the taste would have it so. Partake of that bread as something spiritual and put a cheerful face on your soul. End quote. I could go on and on, but let me end with one more from St. Augustine of Hippo. In 411, he stated in his work Sermons, written to new Christians, quote, I promised you, who have now been baptized, a sermon in which I would explain the sacrament of the Lord's table. That bread, which you see on the altar, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the body of Christ. That chalice, or rather, what is in that chalice, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the blood of Christ, end quote. Skipping ahead, he continues, quote, what you see is the bread and the chalice. That is what your own eyes report to you. But what your faith obliges you to accept is that the bread is the body of Christ and the chalice is the blood of Christ, end quote. I wrote an article called Why I Believe in the Eucharist in my blog, Pilgrimage to Catholicism. I've included a link in the show notes. In there, I quote a litany of Christians and their affirmations about the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, century after century after century. However, as you look at the list of quotes, consider two things. First, consider how consistent the statements are throughout history, but also consider how consistent the statements are throughout geography. Keep in mind that there wasn't a compiled New Testament until the late 4th century to early 5th century. Yet these Christians in Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Syria, in Rome, in North Africa, in Asia Minor, spread out hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles, believe the same thing about the Eucharist. It can only mean one thing, that the church fathers from the very beginning stressed the importance of both the practice of the Eucharist and the Eucharistic mystery that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Throughout the ages, when anyone suggested that the Eucharist was less than the body and blood of Jesus, they were quickly corrected by the church magisterium. Even the Protestant reformer Martin Luther believed in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, though differing from the Catholic understanding a bit. And he became deeply upset when his fellow reformer, Huldrych Zwingli, stripped the Eucharist to a mere symbol. 
We must face it. This idea that the Eucharist is anything but the real presence of Jesus requires an acrobatic reading of Scripture and the complete ignoring of the church fathers and selective amnesia with regards to the collective memory of Christianity. It is not faithful to the historical record of Christianity in any way, shape, or form, but rather it is an invention of the Protestant Reformation 1,500 years removed from the beginning of Christianity. As St. John Henry Newman stated, quote, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant, end quote. Catholics often are asked to defend the doctrine of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, as I have done here. I would argue that Catholics do not require the burden of proof. The text of Scripture is repeatedly clear, and the historic record even clearer. The Eucharist, the real presence of Jesus in the consecrated bread and wine, is the source and summit of the Christian life. It has always been that way. A sincere thank you for joining me today for Why Catholic. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. I have another favor to ask. Would you consider becoming a patron? It's just a few bucks a month, and it covers my costs for running this podcast, but I also give a portion of every donation to support Catholic ministries. As a thank you, patrons receive some added benefits, such as being able to recommend future episodes, priority in having your questions answered in future Q&A episodes, and join me live for Zoom chats. You can sign up at whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Until next time, God bless you. My name is Justin Hibbert, and this is Why Catholic.